Chapter fifteen of True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Ernest. True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World by Adolphus W. Greeley. Parr's Lonely March from the Great Frozen Sea. Those grim fields which lie silent as night and uninhabited, and where no sound of human voice breaks the repose, where no dead are buried, and where none can rise. Klopstock. Centuries of efforts to attain the North Pole, under the auspices of the government of Great Britain, had their final culmination in the Arctic expedition of 1875 and 76. The squadron was commanded by Captain Sir George Nair's Royal Navy of Challenger fame, whose flagship, the Alert, wintered at Floberg Beach, exposed to the full force of the mighty pack of the frozen Arctic Ocean. Of the many sledge journeys made with the Alert as the base of operations, the most important was naturally expected to accomplish the main object of the expedition. It was commanded by Commander Albert H. Markham, Royal Navy, who with three man-sledges, two boats, and seventeen men all told, marched directly northward over the hummocky surface of the great frozen sea in an effort to reach the North Pole. By most strenuous labors and heroic persistency, Markham reached on the surface of the ice-covered sea latitude 83 degrees 20 minutes north, a point nearer the North Pole than had ever before been attained by man. This tale sets forth the lamentable experiences of Markham's homeward march, and particularly the vitally important and heroic journey of Lieutenant A. A. C. Parr, Royal Navy, which saved the lives of his slowly perishing comrades. The northward sledge journey over the flows of the frozen sea, though conducted by brave and experienced officers with selected men, was made under unusual physical disadvantages, which made impossible any further success than was actually accomplished. The party was encumbered with heavy boats, which were carried as a precautionary measure through fear lest the main polar pack might be disrupted during their journey. The sledges were fearfully overloaded, for while their burdens of two hundred pounds per man might be hauled short distances over good ice, the later conditions of four hundred pounds three sledges with two crews, per man, in deep snow and through rough ice was simply impossible. The extreme roughness of the ice of the Arctic Ocean was beyond expectation or earlier experience. Finally, it developed on the march that the health and strength of the men were impaired by attacks of incipient and unsuspected scurvy. So it happened that when only thirteen days out from the ship, a scurvy-stricken man had to be hauled on the already overloaded sledge, with true British grit, Markham went ahead, but four days later, in order to spare the strength of his men, who were daily falling out of the traces, he decided to take the chances of pack disruption, and so abandoned one of his boats. It is not needful to give the details of the outward journey, which involved the abject misery of scarified faces, frost-hardened fingers, capsizing sledges, deep snows, and extreme cold to which most Arctic sledgemen are subjected. To these were added road-making, owing to the mazes of high hummocks with deep intervening valleys. The increase of loads, so that progress could be made only by standing poles, was bad enough, but this disability was enhanced by the steady decrease of the number of sledgemen by the necessity of hauling disabled men, 
and by the nursing care of patients steadily growing worse and unable to do anything for themselves under such conditions markham added to the glory of the british navy by displaying the flag of his country on may twelfth eighteen seventy six in eighty three degrees twenty minutes north thus establishing a world's record as five of his seventeen men were then unable even to walk his venturesome courage in this journey could not be surpassed certainly commander markham pushed to the extreme limit compliance with his assertive sledge motto i dare do all that becomes a man who dares do more is none amidst the glory and happiness of this notable day there could not fail to arise in the minds of all especially of markham and his efficient aide lieutenant parr unbidden forebodings as to the homeward march was it not possible that their distressing conditions were a prelude to disaster would they all reach the ship at all events they would do all that was in their power the seriousness of the situation was soon evident in five days travel though inspired to greater efforts by the fact that they were homeward bound they averaged only one and a half miles daily at which rate it would take fifty days of uninterrupted sledging to reach the alert the sledge work was simply appalling almost heartbreaking it took the whole force to advance the largest of the three sledges and the necessary return for the smaller sledges tripled the distance of the original march in addition the windings of the road to avoid bad ice so increased the length of the route that they were travelling five miles for each mile made good toward the ship meantime the health and the strength of the men steadily decreased and most alarming symptoms of all the appetites of the sledgemen began to fail markham's field journal briefly tells the harrowing tale with great difficulty can the patients be persuaded to eat anything mouths are too tender for well-soaked biscuit and stomachs rebel against pemmican and fat bacon unquenchable thirst alleviated at meals only for lack of fuel to melt ice invalids very weak and much subject to fainting fits so utterly helpless and prostrate are they that they have to be assisted in every detail by two and sometimes four of their companions tea leaves are devoured with avidity by the majority the men find great difficulty in moving their legs and are in great pain all are so stiff that the slightest exertion causes great suffering out of thirty-four legs in the party we can only muster eleven good ones every hour is important as we know not when we may all be attacked and rendered useless when in this condition they were storm-stayed for thirty-six hours by a violent blizzard when one could not see a sledge's length ahead this brought matters to a crisis and to hasten the march markham was obliged to abandon his last boat and all stores that could be spared ammunition one hundred and seventy pounds of pemmican and much camp gear it was indeed time for only four of the men were entirely well a pleasurable incident made happy for a moment these distressed sailors sick worn out surrounded by illimitable expanse of ice markham records the appearance of a little snow bunting which fluttered around us for a short time uttering to us its rather sweet chirp this was an event of no small interest to our party as it was the first bird seen by the majority for a period of nine months even the sick men on the sledge requested they might have their heads uncovered and lifted so as to obtain a glimpse of the little warbler conditions steadily changed from bad to worse and on june second the sledge party was simply a band of cripples five helpless invalids were in their sleeping bags on the sledge 
four others were barely able to crawl along leaving only six men and two officers to drag their sick comrades and the heavily loaded sledge on june fifth they camped on land about seven miles south of cape joseph henry and were cheered and encouraged by having a meal of fresh hare which had been thoughtfully cached for them by a travelling party unfortunately they came to the shore a day too late for on visiting the depot markham learned from a note to our disappointment that captain nares may and fielden had only left for the ship the previous day this was very unfortunate although temporarily braced up by fresh meat and by delicacies from the depot the party reached its effective end the following day june sixth five invalids were on the sledge for others had to lie down on the snow and rest every thirty or forty yards and a tenth man was quite near the end while the party had wandered a distance from the road markham fully realized the critical situation of the party and writes so rapid had been the encroachments of the disease that it was only too palpable that immediate succor was necessary for our salvation at the rate of progress we were making it would take us fully three weeks to reach the ship although only forty miles distant and who would there be left in three weeks time the few who were still strong enough to drag the sledges would barely last as many days in his field journal he records on june sixth after a long consultation with parr it has been resolved that he shall proceed to-morrow morning if fine and walk to the ship our only chance of saving life is by receiving succor as soon as possible although the distance from us to the ship is nearly forty miles over floes covered with deep snow and girt with heavy hummocks he has nobly volunteered to attempt it and has confidence in his being able to accomplish it he is the only one of the party strong enough to undertake such a march parr knew the strain that such a dangerous and difficult journey involved so he arranged his equipment and laid his plans accordingly as lightly outfitted as was safe he started at ten o'clock in the evening wisely avoiding the disadvantages of day travel the night gave him the needed lower temperatures with firmer snow crust and avoided the snow-blinding sun glare as the course was to the south which brought the midnight sun on the traveller's back and so spared his eyes while more clearly disclosing the irregularities of the ice most fortunately there was no wind the weather was fine the air so clear that to the westward stood sharply outlined the coast of grant land along which the heroic officer had often travelled during the past year this enabled him to keep a straight course and saved him from the dangers of straying to which one is liable in thick or stormy weather when travel must be slowly made by careful compass bearings he took with him food for a single day only with a small spirit lamp so that in extreme need he could start a fire melt ice for drinking water or warm a scanty meal with his belt well pulled up his footgear carefully and not too tightly adjusted ice chisel in hand and snow goggles over his eyes he said good-bye and started amid the answering god-speeds of his comrades which long re-echoed in his ears as so many appeals for aid and stimulants to action two routes were open to him to the alert possibly the safer way in the advanced sage of oncoming summer but certainly a much longer route lay along the ice foot of the coast which from the next headland made a long detour to the westward around marco polo bay the shorter airline route was across the sea ice now fast decaying under the summer sun with the certainty of many air holes and possible pitfalls where tides and pressure sun and currents had broken and wasted the winter flow confident in his keenness of vision and in his familiarity with sea ice 
he took the shorter airline route though its rough rubble ice and shattered hummock masses were sure to make greater demands on his physical strength and to require vigilance to avoid accidents on and on mile after mile hour upon hour he marched slowly but steadily onward stumbling often and halting only when road conditions demanded now and then the loose rubble ice separated under his feet leaving him uncertain footing and again huge pressure ridges or converging hummocks obliged the weary man to carefully seek a safe way through their tangled confused masses the greatest danger was that of breaking through thin ice and when he came to some attractive piece of new smooth ice deceptively promising fast and easy travel it was his rule to carefully test its strength and thickness with his ice chisel before venturing to cross it it was not that his life should be lost but that he carried with him the gift of life or the message of death to others now and then he staggered and there came over him a sense of growing weariness but the thought of his helpless dying comrades on the great frozen sea behind him and of the eager willing hearts in the ship before him steeled his nerves inspired anew his heart and gave fiery energy to his flagging strength and failing body for an hour or two as he marched there arose faint doubts as to the wisdom of his cross-sea route for it was a period of strong tides which in their onward sweep from the northern arctic ocean warped and twisted the mighty ice covering whose total disruption was certain at the first violent gale it being stayed now only by the almost immovable flows of enormous thickness crowding against the bordering lands wearisome and monotonous in the extreme had the main pack become to par after steady travel thereon for more than two months especially during the brief periods of calm weather when the curling wreaths and trailing streamers of the almost constantly drifting snow were absent leaving the scene unrelieved in its almost hideous desolation but then at least he was free from the nervous tension that now came with the loud groans the feeble mutterings the rasping grindings of flows and the loud explosions that mark the surface changes of the pack from heavy tidal action especially the fear of a fog-covered flow came to his mind as vaporous forms like water spirits rose here and there from fissures forming in the cracking flows would the dreaded fog envelop the pack if so what were his chances of reaching the alert and what fate would the fog bring to the field party the uneasy trembling ice pack in thus forcing on him a realization of its presence through motion under his feet recalled inevitably the vision of the great frozen sea which if it had ensured world-wide fame to his faithful sledgemates had also brought death so near to them it was therefore with an overwhelming sense of relief that he clambered up the overtowering ice foot at depot point and once more placed his foot on firm ground ascending the hill he scanned the horizon and was relieved to note that a breath of southern wind was carrying the fog to the north while the flows toward the ship were entirely clear footnote the clearing of the fog was providential for the invalids markham records at that time our usual weather overtook us and the land was entirely concealed by the fog this increases our anxiety about par the solidarity and altruism of the party is shown by the anxiety not for themselves but for others behind him lay marco polo bay while before him was the seemingly boundless and illimitable expanse of the great polar pack ample food dainties in the cache at his feet invited refreshment while physical exhaustion from rough steady travel demanded rest and sleep 
Either need would have here stayed a man of less heroic stamp than Parr, but he paused not to eat a bit of food, to drink a cup of tea, nor to take the brief rest that his tired muscles so sadly needed. A short distance beyond, he scrambled down over the precipitous ice foot to the chaotic, pressure-ridged ice masses of Black Cliffs Bay and fixed his course in a bee-line to the farthest cape, Harley Spit, to the southeast. He could not later recall the awful trials of that cross-bay travel. With failing strength and exhausted body to his confused mind, the furlongs seemed to lengthen out to miles, and the hours were of interminable duration. With his great and splendid vitality almost utterly spent, he reached the cape after nine hours of utmost effort. A short mile along the ice foot brought in sight a standing tent which stirred his heart with visions of expectant comrades from the ship with God-sent aid. Hastening his lagging steps as best he could, he reached the tent and raised the flap. Alas, it was empty, and for the moment he was overcome with bitter and disheartening disappointment. Would aid ever come or help be obtained? With the mental reaction he became conscious of his fearfully exhausted condition and knew that he could go no farther without rest and drink. He lighted his tiny spirit lamp, filled the pot with fresh snow, unrolled a sleeping bag, and crept into it for warmth and rest. In time, all too short it was to the worn-out man, the kettle sang its usually welcome song of steam. Then came the tea, strong and almost boiling, it stirred his blood, cheered his heart, and gave vigor to his wearied body. He needed none for his unfailing courage. On rising he found that his legs were so stiff that he could barely place one before the other. But with a great effort of will he was soon able to reach the flow, and to go on toward Cape Sheridan, beyond which at a short distance lay the alert, and safety. Pressing onward steadily, though with decreasing speed, from hour to hour he hoped against hope to meet some sailor comrade from the ship, either hunters seeking game or officers taking their daily exercise. Time and again a black speck on the floe took the mocking semblance of a man to his longing eyes, only to fade into an inanimate shape. Time and again, as he stumbled or staggered, it seemed as though he would fail. So feeble had the body become, and so forceless his will-power. Could he reach the ship? Would help come in time for the dying men behind? Most fearful of all, was the alert still there? Exposed to the full force of the Arctic Ocean, had she suffered shipwreck, or was she unharmed? If safe, why did no one come? At last he was at Cape Sheridan, and, oh, happiness, there against the southern sky were outlined the bare spars and the covered deck of the long-salt alert. She was but a few miles away, yet in his enfeebled state she seemed to recede rather than to advance as he dragged himself along. But everything has its end, and in six of his weariest hours Parr reached the ship, strangely enough, without being seen. Striding silently across the deck, nodding only to the officers on watch, he nervously knocked on the panels of Captain Nares's cabin. The door swung open at once, and for a few seconds the captain stared vaguely at his subordinate. So solemn was Parr's look, so soiled his garb, so weary his expression, and so travel-stained was his person, that Sir George at first failed to recognize him. Meanwhile, matters had steadily gone from bad to worse with Markham and his men. On the day following Parr's departure, Gunner George Porter, who had been sick seven weeks with suspected scurvy, was taken with retching, with recurring spasms, and with stertorous breathing, which ended in his death. 
regard for the safety of the living did not permit of carrying him farther and he was buried on the floe in a deep snowdrift near the camp at the head of his grave was placed a cross improvised from the oar of a boat and a sledge batten the day following the death of porter only five of the fourteen men were able to enter the sledge harness so that commander markham had to make the needful sixth sledgeman to move the party forward the next day two other men failed utterly immediately before the arrival of the relief party from the alert promptly dispatched as a result of parr's heroic journey before reaching the ship there remained only three of markham's original fifteen men who were not dragged on the relief sledges unable to walk heroic as was the dauntless spirit that spurred parr to the journey which saved the lives of several of his field comrades it was well matched by his indomitable will and by his powers of physical endurance by the route traversed parr marched over forty miles which under any conditions would have been a remarkable achievement without extended break or rest over the rough surface of the great frozen sea whose broken disjointed ice masses present difficulties of travel to an almost incredible degree not only was parr's march practically unbroken but it was made in less than twenty-three hours a somewhat shorter time than was taken by dr moss and lieutenant may with a fresh dog team on a forced march for the relief of the party parr's conduct after his most heroic action was thoroughly modest and unassuming in the field and later at home his life appears to have been an exemplification of his sledge motto during the northern journeys of ferrer sans dire to do and not to talk in recalling the past and glorious deeds of british seamen in arctic work during the past century looking to the future one may ask with drayton oh when again shall englishmen with such acts fill a pen End of chapter fifteen recording by mark ernest